a funny thing happened over the summer. I got my braces removed and I figured out how to use a straightening iron. And when I came back to school the next year, things were a little bit different. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary, personal, narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Each week, a storyteller will tell one of their stories and then break it down with me, Sean. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, great stories. We are in the middle of season number two, dedicated entirely to women. And today I am joined by Erin Barker. Erin lives up in New York City, and she is the executive director of the Story Collider, which helps people of all walks of life, from scientists to doctors, to patients, to engineers, teachers, and firefighters, tell their true personal stories about science. We first met when I was on the Story Collider podcast. Erin's a great coach and producer, and I'm really pleased that she's joining us here on the Grit Podcast. As always, check the show notes for upcoming events and workshops, and help us out if you listen on Apple, rate, review, and subscribe, or at least one of those. It really helps people find this podcast. We really appreciate that. And without further ado, Erin Barker, let's dive in. Thanks for making the time to talk. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. We will talk more about your story, of course. But before you tell it, uh, I'm wondering, is this a newish story that you've crafted or something older that you're revisiting? Yeah, it's kind of an older story. I've never, I don't know if I've ever told it on stage. If I have, I haven't done it very often. At the start of all of our Story Quieter workshops, we do an exercise called Good Story, Bad Story, Mm -hmm. where I basically, I do uh, a very bad version of my origin story, which is basically like reading my resume. Sure. And then I do this hopefully better version of my origin story. And I let people see the difference between telling something in story and just telling something as a blah, blah, blah. Like we often, most people do, because they don't learn this stuff and they just blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. So this is my, my hopefully better example. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to shut up. And let you tell your story whenever you're ready. I fell in love for the first time when I was 15 years old. And I saw Adam run into a trash can in the hallway of our high school. He was so distracted by the book that his face was buried in, A Tale of Two Cities, that he just collided, bam, with that garbage can. And I just thought, this is it. This is the one for me. Because Adam was so cool in so many ways. He was the lead singer of a band called Six String. He was, you know, academically ranked one of the highest in our class. He was on the soccer team, a starter on the varsity soccer team, but he was also secretly nerdy, nerdy enough to be so into A Tale of Two Cities that he would collide with a trash can. And I thought, this is perfect. So I asked him out and (laughs) He said no. 
uh, for all the aforementioned reasons about how much cooler he was than me, I assumed. And so I thought, oh, great. Uh, well, this will be fine. I will just avoid him for the entire rest of high school. <laughs> and unfortunately, that didn't work out because both Adam and I were on the magazine staff at our high school. And for junior year, he had been named editor of the opinion section, and I had been named assistant to the editor of the opinion section. <laughs> so I was facing down a whole school year of assisting someone who had just rejected me. Awesome. But then thing happened over the summer, which is that I got my braces removed and I figured out how to use a straightening iron. And when I came back to school the next year, things were a little bit different especially because now I was Adam's assistant and I was assisting him all the time, which I think he found very attractive. So that year over Christmas break, he showed up on my doorstep in the middle of the snow and he said, Aaron, I'm in love with you. Be my girlfriend. Because that is the type of thing that only someone like Adam could get away with doing and saying. And so I did. And it was a great time in my life. Not only did I have this boyfriend that I'd always wanted, but I also, you know, was really learning to love journalism in the work that I was doing. I was writing a lot of pieces and getting this amazing feedback from everybody in my class. I loved it. Journalism gave me the power to ask people questions, whatever I wanted to know, and they would just tell me. And I was really just falling in love with being able to tell people's stories, being able to show people another point of view about how to look at something. And I was getting so into it that I thought, well, maybe next year I could be chief editor. It was a long shot because my grades weren't great, but I had recently been promoted to sports editor uh, as every sports editor <laughs> is fired about a few months into the job. And so now Adam and I were on the same plane, he opinion editor and me sports editor. And when we talked about applying for chief editor next year, the problem was we both wanted to apply. And when we talked about it, he said, you know, Aaron, I just don't think you should apply for chief editor because I don't want you to be disappointed when you don't get it. Why don't you apply for a managing editor instead? And that way it can be like you're my assistant again and we can go back to the way things were. And strangely, the idea of becoming Adam's assistant again did not excite me. <laughs> but I thought, you know, he was probably right. He was so much smarter than me. He got such better grades than I did. He was clearly a better choice for editor-in-chief than I was. And he was right. I would probably just get rejected. So I didn't apply. And shortly afterward, Adam dumped me and started dating the entertainment editor. And I had to listen to them tickling each other in the magazine lab all the time. This magazine lab that had once been my safe place, my safe haven. And then after that, I got rejected from my dream journalism school at Ohio University. And Adam got accepted. I was crushed, but I decided this time I wasn't going to take defeat lying down. 
So I made copies of all of my articles and I put them together in a binder and I added some recommendation letters from my journalism advisors and my teachers and I packaged it all together and I mailed it off to Ohio University and I asked them to reconsider their decision. And a few days later, I got a call. I was in. They changed their minds. And in a way, it meant even more to me than if I'd gotten in the normal way. Because I knew that I'd gotten in purely on the strength of two things, two qualities that I was now most proud of. The strength of my writing, my gumption. ended on gumption <laughs> ended on, where, and i so, almost said grit but that would be too on the nose uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah perfect though. that's awesome it's a cool story do you recall like how many for lack of a better word versions of that story did you sort of go through and tweak to where it is today was that like one perfect shot where you nailed it or was it like iteration after iteration Definitely. I think all of my stories are iterations, mm-hmm. you know, that comes by performing and feeling out reactions and new things occur to you. You make new connections. People ask me all the time how many stories I have. And I'd never know how to answer that question because they have like, you know, 20 versions of the same story. <laughs> right. But I really have like maybe three periods of my life that I'm interested in. Mm. And then just a lot of stories. Uh, that center on various aspects of each of those periods. I've never heard anybody say it quite like that. Like a lot of your stories are centered on certain periods of your life. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I don't know if other people think of it that way, but that's how I think of it. Yeah, I think most people think of it as like, what's the big stuff that has happened, which makes sense. But I think some of the best stories I hear are often not the big stuff. You know, the the smaller moments that you find some stuff about it that makes it compelling. Yeah, I think when you're first starting out, you gravitate toward that big stuff, Yeah, right? Sure. But then, yeah, as your instincts are refined, you can start to see the stories in the smaller moments. And I think you have a little more latitude with audience because of that big thing will give you a little more of like, even if it's not crafted amazingly well, that's such an exceptional, remarkable thing that you might have our attention a little longer. But we know that doesn't usually last very long if it's not a good story. I'm curious, what makes this story, in your opinion, a good story versus a bad story? Do you want me to do the bad version? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I would love that. Are you cool with that? Most people in our our workshops are scientists or STEM professionals. So it's kind of designed specifically to to get at the fact that many scientists like to sort of give a biographical account when they're talking about who they are. Yes. (laughs) This is what I do for a bad story. I've been studying journalism since I was very young, and I always had a passion for the written word. I had so many great teachers and friends who encouraged me, and with a lot of hard work and perseverance, I managed to get into E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University, which is an excellent program where I had the opportunity to study under people like Bill Reeder and Tom Hodson. I focused on magazine, which gave me the opportunity to write several features for local and national publications. I was able to get an internship with the Cincinnati Enquirer and later with the business publisher. I learned a lot about how to construct a lead and how to go beyond inverted pyramid to tell innovative stories. And when I graduated, I was a journalist. Wow. 
nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. Like that's information and it's very interesting. So I'm going to ask you, and I and imagine this is part of the conversation you have with your workshop students. What are the main differences, right? Well, I like to ask them how many people were able to pay attention throughout the bad version yeah. <laughs> versus the good version. And most people can see the difference there. I sometimes ask them, I ask them to raise their hands if they felt hostile towards me during the bad story. <laughs> and some of them sometimes raise their hands. Ooh, all right. Which is kind of interesting. And I ask them which one makes them trust me more. And it's usually the good version. People say engenders more trust, even though I'm unintuitively, I'm sharing mistakes I've made or flaws about myself. Yeah. Despite that, it's still the more trustworthy version. So do you find that uh, folks involved with STEM tend to le lean in the direction of, I don't want to share some of that, those flaws or those vulnerabilities? And weirdly, it might work against them. For sure. There's so little incentive in science culture in the STEM world for being vulnerable and for being honest about your emotions and upfront about your emotions. Mm. And I think um, that can be really uncomfortable for people. It's sort of trained out of them. Yeah. So yeah, part of what we do in our workshops is convincing them that vulnerability can be a powerful tool. A completely understandable why they would be hesitant to do that. And I would imagine even if some want to do that, they may not know how to do that. Right. So what are some of the things I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit. So are there things that you're able to share with them in terms of when they think about craft and or tell the story that lends itself to that kind of truth or vulnerability? Yeah, we share a lot of actually scientific research with them that kind of points to the advantages of vulnerability. And one of these studies is by a social scientist named Susan Fisk. She uh, has this theory that she posits that in order to be an effective expert, we have to be perceived as both warm and competent mm. by our audience. And all of us, we're always making snap judgments whenever we meet someone about how warm or how competent they are, how able they are to carry out a task, and then whether we can trust them to carry mm -hmm. out a task in a way that benefits or supports us are kind of those two frames of reference. And so... She actually measured people's responses in terms of how they ranked different professions and kinds of people in terms of warmth and competence and found that scientists sadly score very high in competence and very low in warmth. <laughs> and so when we're talking to them, we, we talk about this idea that if you want to bring up your warmth so that you can be that effective expert that people trust, share your vulnerability, your humility, your sense of humor, all of these things that help us connect with other people. Yeah. And, and part of that, sometimes your flaws or even your failures, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's tricky though, right? Especially if they're in these big conferences and everybody's on that stage, it still might be effective, but I could absolutely understand why they might be like, no, I think I'm just going to go with closer to Aaron's second story there. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a time and a place when you're defending your thesis. You probably right. don't want to tell your story about your ex-boyfriend from high school. Sure. Audience matters <laughs> a lot. And I don't know how you framed it, but there's something about us rooting for you. So that you I asked, asked them if they felt hostile toward me That's in the it. bad story. Yeah. Presumably, we don't want to feel that way. Yeah. We don't want to. <laughs> so the way I'm, I'm sort of reframing that a little bit is, are we? If, if I'm not hostile, I'm typically rooting for somebody. I know that's a big thing in storytelling and can also be challenging. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes the stories I want to tell, like, ah, I don't give a shit if you root for me. 
but it does kind of matter because you don't want to lose your audience. Yeah. Totally. Mm. All right. So I'm going to circle back to the other thing that you had mentioned about paying attention. How do you create a space so people want to hear the next thing out of your mouth? Mm. That's hard. Let's assume they're already somewhat on board. They're not forced to be there. Let's assume their phones are in there are not right in front of their faces. You still have to figure that out. So what are some of the things that you, uh, either teach or model for that? Yeah, we have this idea called the cow and the fence uh, that was shared with us by one of our board members, Steve Zimmer. Yeah, he's an amazing storyteller, one of the greatest of all time. Uh, Check him out on The Moth. Steve has this uh, concept of the cow on the fence. I sent him a draft of one of my stories for notes once, and he, in return, sent me this photo of a cow stuck on a fence Mm -hmm. as if this would be self-explanatory. Sure. So Steve, sure. I'm going right, to sure. a little bit more. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. A little bit more explanation here. And he told me this picture of this cow stuck on this fence is a picture of a story. This is what a story is. He mm-hmm. says, we know what this cow wants, which is to get on the other side of the fence. Mm-hmm. We know what's standing in its way, <laughs> which is this fence. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen. It could go either way. It could go any way for this cow. Mm-hmm. And so we're in this moment of dramatic tension. Uh-huh. with this cow. <laughs> so we use this uh, photo to represent dramatic tension in our workshop program to show people if you want to keep people in suspense, waiting to hear what's going to happen next, we got to know what you want, what's in your way. And we have to be just have no idea how you're going to accomplish that. I love that. But you could also arguably, right, let's say it's a 10 minute story. You could have I, I'm clear on what I want. I want to get the girl. Something's in the way, a guy, another guy, and you don't know what's going to happen, but there's still things we can do throughout the story that amps up that surprise, those stakes, because I think if you, if you don't make it somewhat granular, you could still lose people, Mm. even with those ideas of I'm a guy, I want to get the girl, you get in the weeds, you go overboard on your detail and all that stuff. So I continue to put you on the spot here, but are there any sort of tips you could give and you don't have the luxury of an entire workshop for context? I get that. That would help people sort of in those moments, moment to moment, keep us engaged or attentive. Yeah, totally. Uh, Another thing that we share in our workshops is the concept of transportation. And this is something that I thought was really cool when I got involved with StoryQuiter and started learning about this. Uh, transportation is that state that we're in, you know, like when you're reading a book and you don't hear somebody call your name or like you're so into a movie, you don't notice the time going by Mm -hmm. because you're transported into that story and it's Mm -hmm. taking up your entire mental world. And when you're transported into a story, your emotions are going to fluctuate up and down with those of the main characters because you're so engaged with that story mentally. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. Yeah. When you're transported into a story, you're more likely to share it with someone, to go back and listen to it again, to like dive deep into the subject matter. There's all these things that happen as a result because it has a powerful effect on you. There's a scientist, Dr. Melanie Green, who studies this concept. What she says is in part of her work is that in order to transport people into our stories, we have to create this world for them, Mm -hmm. like sensory details that Mm -hmm. will bring them in, that will allow them to experience those same like sensory feelings mentally, 
uh, having a consistent world that we've built, you know, like when you're watching a movie and there's some kind of like plot hole that just sucks you right out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you want mm-hmm. that world to be consistent for people to enter into. So I try to focus on building scenes yes. in my stories. I think it's really important to have specific moments that people can latch on to and be a part of. Not an easy way, but a simple way is take us into that world keep us in there. It's hard to do sometimes. Keep us in the world, keep us in there. And we want to know what's going to happen next, essentially, which for your story, I was, uh, I was very much able to visualize. Now I'm sure my visualizations weren't actually what was true, but it doesn't matter. Right. I get to decide what I want your world look like. You painted it somewhat. And I was really, I was kind of wanting to know what happened next, which is like, I guess that's about all you can really ask for. Right. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I think, You make a good point with oral storytelling. It's important not to overburden people with a lot of like descriptive details when you're trying to draw them into the scene. One of the questions that I ask our workshoppers when I tell the story is in that opening scene when he runs into the trash can, do you have a mental picture of that? And I saw Adam run into a trash can in the hallway of our high school. He was so distracted by the book that his face was buried in, A Tale of Two Cities, that he just collided, bam, with that garbage can. What are you picturing? Most people are picturing the halls of their own high school, right? They're not picturing my high school. They don't know what color the lockers were or anything like that. But it's enough to allow them to create their own mental world. Giving us enough. You can't give us nothing. You got to give us something. But if you go overboard, right, and you you only have so much time, you're almost stealing a little bit of my imagination. Mm. And that's a tricky balance though. So I think you did a really nice job. I was imagining it. Right. Like I don't need to know the for this story, the colors of the walls in your school. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, people just want to connect with a character. Mm. Right. And so if your story is so bogged down in details that they can't connect with the character. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you to give away all your workshop secrets. I would rather people just take the (laughs) workshop. Are there other things that stand out, big stuff, particularly when you're dealing with people who are newer to this, that they tend to struggle with? It's really important to focus just on one specific story arc Mm -hmm. in oral storytelling with limited time, right? Some people, especially with those big experiences, like you talked about, they'll try to weave all of these threads into Mm -hmm. it and you just can't, it won't leave enough time for you to really focus and dwell in one of those arcs. And so that's what I think we spend a lot of time with newer storytellers doing is saying, all right, which thread do we want to focus on to talk about this experience? And maybe these other five threads are different stories. Because, you know, a lot of other things happened to me in high school besides this. <laughs> but Absolutely. They weren't relevant. <laughs> right. And I'm sure there are other things you might have included in this particular story that could be relevant. You just can't do it all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you make a, a really good point, though, with the bigger stuff. For me, a lot of some of the stories I write about or craft are around my mental health and my challenges. Mm-hmm. I know everything. It happened to me. There's so much stuff dating back to when I'm like a kid. It's hard. Yeah. Right. It's hard to untangle sometimes. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah. And your story on our podcast was a great example of that kind of smaller story that you find after you've been telling stories for a while. There's something small that happened to you, but actually there's something kind of big that underlies. Right. I love those kinds of stories. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciated that. I want to give you and Gaster credit because you did a really good job of untangling some because it was helpful. 
All right. So now let's make pretend you're talking to people who have already done storytelling for a while. <laughs> now, do you have a sort of pro tip that even those that have been doing it for a while might need to hear? Well, it's important to always still give feedback, even when you've been doing it for a while. I think some some people and, you know, I'm guilty of this as well, you know, forget the importance of getting feedback on your stories and processing that. And I think one struggle that I kind of perpetually have, and and maybe this is why Steve sent me the cow on the fence image in the first place, is what you put in scene and what you put in overview, what you place the emphasis on in your story. Mm -hmm. And I think subconsciously, sometimes I avoid putting those crucial moments of conflict into Mm. scene because they're uncomfortable, right? Especially moments of change. Those Mm. are the uncomfortable moments in your story, but they're also the best moments, the most important moments a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it's important not to, not to skip your cow from one side of the fence to the other, but to spend time on that fence. Yeah. So what is your current role with the Story Collider? 19 days ago, I guess I became executive director previously artistic director we used to have this model where we had uh, I was the artistic director and I had a co-director who was the executive director and our prior executive director she left the organization last August mm-hmm. and so we brought in an interim ED a nonprofit consultant who worked with our board deciding how to move forward and they asked me to become the sole director going forward and we hired a couple of new staff positions to support that so so you really do spend a lot of time in this world. Yeah, pretty much all, all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so you're running it. Story Collider offers workshops. There's obviously the podcast, which is awesome. Do you do live shows? Yes, mm-hmm. we've been doing live online shows. And our first in-person show is going to be August 24th at Caveat here in New York City. Just to be clear, first or first back? First back after COVID, yeah. So you had been doing in-person shows. I should have done my homework. I apologize. Caveat's a That's cool a, space. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, before you did the podcast, before we were doing these remote recordings, all of our podcasts were live recordings from our live shows. Makes it easier. Yeah, I'm looking forward to my job being like 50% less complicated. <laughs> right. For sure. One other question, and then I'll sort of leave it open if you want to add anything else. I went to the in-person moth last week. Oh, cool. Here in the city. Yeah. And I told the story. I got picked. I finished third. My question for you, Aaron Barker, is why didn't I finish first? (laughs) I can't be held responsible. I wasn't. Why did I? (laughs) It was a great, great night. It was so much fun to be in person again. Oh, man. I can't wait. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited. Yeah. Those slams. Yeah. I'm excited to go back to the Moss slams as well. Do you like the slams? Some people are into the competitive thing. Yeah, I do. It took me a while to get my nerve up to start putting my name in the hat. (laughs) I think I went to a few before I did, but I do. I love it. It's scary to get numerically judged on a story that you've told. Isn't it? It is. Yeah. And no judgment of anybody who finds that scary because I totally agree. It is nerve wracking. Yeah. Well, we've been during the pandemic doing some online slams, which have been really fun. We don't do the numerical scores. We have the audience vote on a winner at the end of the night. Which is easier to do on Zoom or some other platform than in person. It's tricky. Yeah. Because how do you do it all? It might be more, a little bit more reflective of how the entire audience feels, but 
sometimes the best story, whatever that means, doesn't win. But it's probably quite rare that a whatever a not good story wins. Probably yeah. rare, right? Yeah, I think I think you probably summed it up. Most stories that win a moth or on on the uh, story collider main stage include the things that you did in your story and the things that you talked about. Please know that I have one one millionth of your listeners, but we're trying. So this is really fun. I appreciate you inviting me. I love being invited to do things like this and especially to talk about storytelling as an art form with somebody like yourself. So oh, thanks so much. Thanks for thanks for joining me. All right, Aaron, uh, talk soon. And I hope things with the collider continue to go super well. All right. Thanks, Sean. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Erin Barker, Executive Director of the Story Collider up in New York City. Thank you, Erin, for joining me and telling your story and breaking it down. Check the show notes for upcoming workshops and events, including the Mental Health Happyish Hour and Open Mic, The Flash, which is a little bit of improv and a little bit of story and a whole lot of courage. And of course, a gentle reminder, if you listen on Apple, please rate, review, and or subscribe. It really helps people find this podcast. That's all for episode number 39. Boom.